Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. Hello there. What is wisdom? This is 2,000 years talking to you from the depths of back there when we was. Now I'm still and they not. <laughs> Isn't wisdom what knowledge becomes when it's forced to account for itself? Could you give us the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. <laughs> How does wisdom differ from mere knowledge? We were very dumb and stupid. <laughs> you want to know something? We were so dumb that we didn't even know who was a lady. <laughs> our guest is Valerie Tiberius, author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely with Our Limits. It's been a thrill living for 2,000 years, and eat our nectarine is the best fruit ever made. Wisdom, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. And today our conversation is about wisdom. What is it? How can we cultivate it? Where has all the wisdom gone? Once upon a time, John, especially in the ancient world, philosophers thought a lot about the nature of wisdom. That was true almost by definition, Ken, that the two Greek words philo and sophia, from which our word philosophy is derived, literally mean love of wisdom. For some Greek philosophers, wisdom was the be-all and end-all of philosophy. Nobody represents this better than Socrates, the founding father of Western philosophy. Socrates launched a lifelong quest for wisdom after being told by the oracle at Delphi that he was the wisest man at Athens. Socrates couldn't see for the life of him how the oracle could be right, since he knew he hungered for wisdom, but he didn't think he had any. But there were lots of people in Athens who did regard themselves as wise. And Socrates thought to himself, well, surely they must really be wise. At any rate, they're wiser than me. So Socrates adopted the role of being a student, eager to learn from his superiors, and he set out to question all the wise men of Athens. And he quickly discovered that despite the fact that they all professed to be wise, none of them really were. Most of them didn't know anything at all. And that helped Socrates to finally understand what that oracle had meant. At least he, Socrates, knew one thing, that he was not wise. That alone gave him a leg up on the self-declared wise men. You know, Ken, that's a sort of a paradoxical kind of wisdom. It suggests that being wise is a matter of knowing what you don't know. But look, I know that I don't know who will win the next presidential election. That may make me depressed, but it doesn't make me wise. Yeah, I, I take your point, but knowing what you don't know can be the beginning of wisdom. Maybe so, but surely not all of wisdom. You know, I also think that what Socrates is talking about is really a kind of epistemic humility. You can't be wise if you arrogantly overestimate the power of your own beliefs and judgments. You need to have the humility, the epistemic humility, to listen and learn, to give other voices their due. Well, I'm not sure humility was what Socrates was thinking of or all of it, but there certainly is a long tradition in Christianity about thinking of wisdom in terms of humility. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. That's Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Yeah, according to Christianity, 
all wisdom ultimately flows from God. And the way for someone to be wise, for a human to be wise, is to be attuned to God's will. Arrogance and pride make us want to substitute mere human wisdom for the real thing. But you know what? That's what Adam and Eve did, and it got us all in trouble. So, okay, humility is a good thing. I don't doubt it. But there's more to wisdom than humility. I mean, humility, after all, is a negative virtue. It tells you what not to do. Don't be an arrogant ass. Wisdom is a positive virtue. It tells you how to live, how to behave, how to feel about things. I, I get your point. Think Aristotle. For Aristotle, wisdom involved a kind of know-how, an affirmative skill. Not a narrowly focused skill, like being a good basketball player or a shrewd marketer, but a wide-ranging skill at living, at doing the things that are most characteristic of a distinctively human life. Things like making decisions and choices and regulating your emotional responses. That's, that's what Aristotle called practical wisdom, or phronesis, to use a fancy Greek word. There seems to me something very right about Aristotle's basic view. Wise people are people who know things, to be sure, things that matter, and people who can put that knowledge to good use in practice. But what exactly do the wise know that the rest of us schmucks don't? Is there a formula for becoming wise? And if there is a formula, then why doesn't somebody just write it down once and for all and be done with it? And if there is no formula, no rules or principles to study, then how in the world do we cultivate wisdom in the first place? Good questions all, John. And in a little bit, we'll take them up with our guest, Valerie Tiberius, author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely with Our Limits. And we'll want a little help from our very wise listening audience as well. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, seeks wisdom from people who have lived long enough to acquire some. She files this report. My great-grandmother used to say, you can love a rich man as much as you can love a poor one. I didn't exactly follow that advice, but it seems wise. Agesong Lake Merritt is an independent living community for seniors in Oakland, California. There's a bottomless mimosa brunch, a full bar that's popular with the seniors during cocktail hour, and a piano that plays itself. Uh, wisdom for me is learning from your life experiences, especially how to forget and forgive. I think it's the outcome of many, many experiences. Betty Gorin is one of five older women at Agesong who wanted to talk about the wisdom she's accumulated over the decades. We also heard from Norma Yaglegian. I don't think I could give advice to young people except be more accepting, be more tolerant, think a little bit before you speak, and think of the other person. I'm Helen Moss. Develop your own inner resources and ability to be flexible and independent so you can survive all this. Because I can't imagine uh, some of the challenges that are coming for the next generations. My name is Cynthia Hall. I think in giving advice to younger people, I would start out by saying, be independent, be your own person. I wanted more than anything else to fly. And in those days, flying for women was crazy. You know, no, no woman would really want to fly an airplane. But I did, more than anything else, and I did it. But you've got to be independent. You've got to do things for yourself, as well as do them for your husband and for your children and for your mother and father. The wisest person I have ever known, I think, was a man named Manuel Sanguesa, who was a Spaniard. He had great control over his own life. He smoked 
when the time came for him to stop smoking because it was destroying his lungs, he put the pack of cigarettes down on his nightstand and left them there with an easy reach of his hand and never touched them again. The older I get, the more assertive I get, whether people like it or not. But I'm much happier. I'm Florence Siegel. You can tell by my accent that I'm from New York. I can't pretend that I'm happy being older. I'm wiser, uh, but I'm finding the more physical limitations I have very upsetting. But it, there's no question that this wisdom, it's too bad it took so long to come. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. And our guest is Valerie Tiberius. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota. She's author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely with Our Limits. Valerie, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Valerie, the nature of wisdom was a major preoccupation of ancient philosophers, but not so much these days. So tell us, what made you want to make wisdom the focus of your own work? Well, I think I kind of uh, got into it through the back door. When I was a young 20-something in graduate school, I was confronting all these big choices about my life. Where to, you know, I moved across the country, I ended one relationship, started another, was moving, deciding about career and uh, all sorts of things, what to write a dissertation about, who to work with. And so naturally, these questions about how do you reason about how to live your life were really interesting to me. And philosophers have thought about those topics. It's just that they've called it practical reasoning instead of wisdom. And at one point, I just realized that, you know, really what I'm talking about is it is practical reasoning, but it's also this virtue of wisdom that has a, a very long tradition. Well, so, practical reasoning is a little different, though, because a lot of philosophers often think about practical reasoning as reasoning about how to do things, right? So the means ends sure. reasoning and all that. And wisdom, you can know how to do things, but that doesn't mean... I mean, the big thing is knowing how to live. That's not just knowing how to bake a cake, knowing how to just means yes. to end. You know, it's a little more complicated than just practical reasoning, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I think I made my topic legitimate by calling it practical reasoning because that's what other people were working on and that's what was acceptable to do. And then I realized, you know, I'm not thinking about that kind of practical reasoning. What I'm really thinking about is this uh, this big old virtue that um, governs our decisions about how to live our lives in a really kind of profound way. So do you have a working definition then of wisdom that we can uh, kind of use to get started? Um, working definition is practical wisdom. That's the kind that I'm interested in, is uh, the virtue that governs decisions about uh, how to live your life. So That's the nutshell. So practical reasoning is, is kind of means-end reasoning. This is what I want. This is what I value. This is what I'm trying to do. This is how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so what must be distinctive about wisdom, then, is, is kind of the overarching goal of the practical reasoning. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I also think that part of practical wisdom is being able to reason about what the goal is. Um, so a person with wisdom needs to be able to reflect on what things matter in life and how to put those various things together well, and pursue them. Is there, a, is there a right way and a wrong way of doing this? Is there a good and bad? I mean, I could say, okay, how do, how do re I reason about how to live my life well? Well, you know, I really like money. 
I really like uh, sex. I really like booze. Get all the money, sex, and booze I can. And that's how I should live my life. And so I just reasoned about it. And I know how to go about getting booze. I buy it in the store. I know how to get money. I work hard to get it. And getting sex, well, that's a little more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But is that wisdom? I mean, by your definition, it does, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to rule out very much ways of thinking about life. Right. Um, the definition doesn't rule out much until you start adding what actually matters to people. Um, and I think that though people might say that money is really important to them and sex and booze and whatnot is really important to them, um, I think if you probe a little deeper and you get people to be more reflective about what matters to them, what they will say and actually what they do say is that uh, things like friendship, achievement, um, a deep sort of happiness and contentment, feeling like they're living a meaningful life. These are the things that matter to people. Well, uh, you, and pursuing you, money might compete with that. You, you're putting that as kind of an empirical claim, but mm. aren't you really saying that's what ought to matter to people, that, that someone who, who asks what matters to them and comes up with Ken's list uh, really isn't wise? That's not the list they should have come up with. Yeah, that, that, and that's a really good question. I'm because of my own philosophical commitments. I'm reluctant to say these are the objective values that every person must pursue. Um, so I do mean it as an empirical claim, um, but I think um, that it's a, it's it, it's not what in fact people would say if you just stop them on the street and ask them, but it is what they would say they value if you let them think about it a little bit and maybe uh, guided them a little bit in do, their thinking. Do you think there is a shared set of things that not just should matter, that's normative, but actually do matter to people? And we can say, okay, wisdom is, because these things are what actually matter to people kind of universally. That's what wisdom is, skill at doing, achieving those things. You think there's something yeah, universal I think there? Yeah, I do. And I think in very general terms that, that there is some, I mean, not every single person is going to value the, the list of things I just mentioned, um, but I think most people do. And then the skill partly comes in articulating what those things really mean. So people value intimate relationships, friendships, family relationships, but that means different things for different people. Some people will be parents and will have important relationships with their kids. Other people will have really, you know, uh, valuable friendships. Um, so how that general value gets uh um, actually lived in someone's <laughs> life will differ from person to person. But you, I think at the very abstract level, there's a lot of universality. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're talking about wisdom with Valerie Tiberius from the University of Minnesota. In our next segment, we'll ask what exactly the wise know that the rest of us don't. Is wisdom the kind of thing that can be codified and taught? Can the young be wise? Or does wisdom demand age and experience? I think so. What sorts of experience? How can we cultivate greater wisdom in ourselves and others? What the wise know. Plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Where exactly do you go to find wisdom? I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk. Do you consider yourself wise? Do you know anybody that's wise? What's the secret of wisdom? What's the difference between wisdom and mere knowledge? Nobody starts out wise. Nobody's born wise. So how do people become wise? Is it the kind of thing that can be taught? 
Our guest is Valerie Tiberius from the University of Minnesota, author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely Within Our Limits. So, Valerie, I want to get back to this objective thing in a little bit, but first I want to ask you something else. Uh, Aristotle thought that wisdom is connected to knowing how to live seems kind of right to me at bottom, but it's always puzzled me a bit. What exactly is it that wise people know about living that the rest of us don't? And is it the kind of thing that you can sort of encapsulate in a formula and write down once and for all? Yeah, I agree with you that Aristotle was really onto something, and Aristotle certainly thought there was no formula. It would be it would be great if we could have a formula or a pill, you know, we could right. maybe put it in the water. Okay, so what um, is it that the wise know that the rest of us don't? Well, I, I think it's not actually about knowledge, but about habits that the wise have cultivated. And, you know, in particular, I think there's certain things that... Um, human beings, these sort of weaknesses we have. We tend to, we think we know everything. We think we know everything about ourselves. We think we know what our motives are. And we're, we really, we really don't. So I think uh, the point that you started with about Socrates and the value of humility, I think that's a really important thing. And I think that wise people cultivate a kind of practice where they um, try to be more humble about what they know. Um, and a sort of a practice where they are sometimes reflective and then sometimes learning from experience. But wisdom is a long-term uh, thing that, that, you know, you can't uh, snap your fingers and become wise. So when our roving philosophical reporter was interviewing people that had lived long enough to acquire some wisdom, they came up with uh, a number of things. One was tolerance. Another was independence. Do things for yourself, not for your parents, your kids, and so forth. But, of course, uh, you can be too tolerant. You know, some think, some think that uh, some of our political leaders, not to mention Obama by name, uh, are a little too tolerant sometimes. And you can certainly be too much involved with yourself. So, so just listing values doesn't seem to do it. There seems to be something else you need to do with these values. Kind of, Could you write it down and tell me? <laughs> um yeah, well, I mean, this is traditionally this is wisdom has been thought of as the virtue that lets you figure out how the all the other virtues fit together. Uh. So, you know, wisdom is the thing that moderates everything else. You've got this mess of stuff in front of you, all these reasons to do this or that or the other thing. And wisdom is the virtue that prioritizes all those things and sorts them out and gives you the answer. But nobody's ever thought that there's a there's there's no algorithm for that. No one's ever thought there's a formula or an algorithm, um, which is why I tend to think that wisdom has to be this sort of long-term practice where you try to compensate for the the failings that we have, these the psychological failings that we have as human beings that, that lead us away from doing things in a better way. So wisdom, I mean, it sounds like a, a form of knowledge, but, but you make it sound more like something like courage. It's just a character trait that, you know, some people have and some people don't, and it's a little unclear how to acquire it, but some people will and some people won't. Is wisdom more like that? But can, can, I, can I intervene here just before you answer, Valerie? Because it seems to me we need a couple of options on the table here. There are character traits and habits, and there is knowledge where we think about that as, like, facts you can know or propositions you can know, but there's also what people call know-how, that's a kind of knowledge. I know how to do something. I know how to live. I know how to play basketball. The basketball player has some kind of know-how, even if it's just not something that could be codified in a bunch of propositions. But it is a kind of knowledge, don't you think? It's, it's what some people call practical knowledge. 
know how that's not bad. I mean, I tend to think that it you can't wisdom isn't just one thing. It's going to be a set of skills, and I think it requires a lot of understanding. Um, you can't be very wise without knowing some things about how the world works. Um, you, you know that that. Uh, just pursuing money and fame doesn't tend to make people happy. That's a fact, and it's an important fact to know um, if you're going to solve problems for people. Um, but I, but I'm not. I, I'm reluctant to say that. I don't think wisdom can be boiled down to a single skill or or habit or piece of knowledge. It's a it's a set of things all working together. So what's in that? Roughly, what's in that set? I think what's in that set is um, reflection. Uh, so some ability to reflect on what a good life is and what values are a part of it, a kind of critical reflection, self-knowledge, problem-solving skills, and certain kinds of emotional, con- like a, an emotional concern to to make good decisions and to help other people make good decisions. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the nature of wisdom with Valerie Tiberius from the University of Minnesota. We'd love to have you join this conversation. Judith from Mountain View, welcome to Philosophy Talk, Judith. What's your comment yes. or question? Um, when I first moved to San Francisco in 1974, I went into a, um, a stationery store and it had typewriters out on the shelves and you know how people test them out if there's a sheet of paper in them and they go, you know, JJJ, KKK, that kind of thing. Well, here's this typewriter and it said, Wisdom is the child of pain born of tears, dash Aeschylus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you want our reaction to that? Well, what do you think? Okay, so Valerie, what do you think? Wisdom is the child of pain born of tears. You know, there's actually a psychologist, Monica Ardelt, who whose theory of wisdom is that it it is uh, the the way you develop wisdom is through trauma. Um, and I I, there, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, there if people who react well to trauma often uh, come out of it at the other end with a a very uh, clear perspective on what matters. So, you know, you hear about cancer survivors who they go through this terrible, terrible ordeal and they say, I'm a better person now because now I really know what matters in my life and I can focus on it. And I think that's uh, an important part of wisdom. But I don't think trauma always does that for people. And, uh, and you know, sometimes trauma is just terrible. So you, you used a phrase in passing there that I think is really important. I wonder how important you think it is. You said that person said, now I know what really matters. It seems to me that part of wisdom is knowing what matters, what the what the weight of all these competing things on us, all these competing pulls, and what deserves what weight. A well-lived life is a life that's responsive to the weight that things deserves. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the tricky thing is that if you're not wise to say what really matters in any detailed way or any interesting way is, is very difficult. So that's why I tend to think about, well, what is it to think wisely about these things rather than starting with what the things are that are objectively, that objectively matter and moving from there. Uh, Our old friend Greg has sent us uh, some email. He says he's going to make a controversial assertion, and I think he manages to do that. He says, people become wise only after they've exhausted all avenues, energy and testosterone in the pursuit of money, sex and booze and drugs and so forth. This is why old people seem wiser, because they're exhausted, broken down, and have no testosterone left. True or false? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> what do you think, Valerie? Well, the testosterone doesn't back. believe doesn't apply to wise women, I would think. No, and I I want to turn that back to you, Ken, because you're the one who was talking about a life in pursuit of booze and sex and money. <laughs> yeah, how's it coming, Ken? Well, Robert Heinlein <laughs> said, uh, "Mature wisdom is being too tired to give a damn." And I and look and ask yourself, why does why does wisdom? We think of wisdom as something that comes with age. I mean, Greg's under something, right? We think of wisdom as so- something that comes with age. When you're when you're young, you don't understand what it takes to live a well-lived life. You have you have boundless ambition. You have you think you can have it all. You can do whatever you want without constraint. I mean, people tend sometimes to be that way. Well, well, and age teaches you that. There are things that deserve this much of you and things that don't deserve that much of you, and, and you put that all together and, and Did, you get wiser. Didn't Plato say something just like Greg except with a more positive spin that, that as he got older and he was released from all these urges, he could focus on the things that really mattered? But, Valerie, you but, wanted to say. Well, the, I mean, um, aging doesn't do this to everybody, right? Some people become bitter and grumpy and curmudgeonly and no fun and... Uh, don't seem to learn anything from from getting old. So so it isn't. I, I guess I don't think you know. Age sometimes has the effect of making people wiser because those people learn something from experience. But there are a lot of people who have a lot of experiences and learn very little from it. Oh, that's true. That's true. And I, and it's certainly, I, I think wisdom is a rare virtue. Right, and it's but I don't yes. think I don't think it's something that you learn at your mother's knee. It's something you learn in the laboratory of life. And how does the laboratory of life have to be structured so that you learn wisdom? I don't exactly know. I wish I did. And what kind of mind, when subject to the laboratory of life, will acquire wisdom? I don't know. I wish I did. Maybe you know, because you've thought a lot more about this than I. I I do think that I'm not sure what kind of mind is best uh, poised to to develop wisdom, but I do think in terms of the way things could be structured. Not being constantly distracted by advertising and uh, demands tr- demands for our attention for stuff that's really trivial. That I think that would do a lot, um, because I think part of wisdom is paying attention. As you know, as we I think maybe we're even agreeing about that. That an important part of wisdom is paying attention to what matters. But you know, in our current lives, we're very distracted by things that don't really matter, like what brand of toilet paper to buy. So, so Marsha in San Francisco emails us, I think the largest part of wisdom is learning by trial and error when it's time to look at a decision through a magnifying glass and when it's time to step back and in, include the big picture. When to look at the forest and when to hug a tree. Uh, well, I don't know. That sounds like a, an important aspect of it. What do you think? I I am I think that is extremely wise actually. I It's a lot like your view as I understand well, your view. Well, yes, maybe that that must be it. Um yeah, cuz I cuz I do think that this kind of uh what I call in my book this flexibility of attention to be able to sometimes as she put it as the uh, emailer put it to sometimes see the forest but then to look at the trees when that's important. I think that's really crucial. Um you know, to be able to sometimes think about how your life is going. But then if you're out for dinner with a friend, just enjoy your dinner with your friend. Don't sit there thinking about, is this friendship really part of a good life? Is this friendship really helping make my life ma- meaningful? So, so I was going to suggest that the kind of mind that's poised to uh, uh, acquire wisdom from experience is a highly reflective mind, a mind that's always asking, is this what I ought to be doing? How much does this matter? How much is this worth? How can I justify my beliefs? How can I justify my way of being in the world? It sounds like you don't quite agree with that. No, I, I don't. I, th- I think uh, reflection has to be kept in its place. 
I mean, really, you know, we know a lot of professional philosophers do you, who are extremely reflective people. Do you think that <laughs> they are not, paradigms of wisdom? Well, but they're not reflective about what matters. I mean, reflective about what matters and what deserves what weight. You seem to think that some, the, the wise people are kind of like the people who automatically, kind of intuitively can give their right weight to things, something like that. I, I mean, I, I don't want to go that far. And there are people who go that far who, you know, who sort of think of what, what you might call peasant virtues, that virtue virtue doesn't require any intelligence. It's just a, an intuitive um, response. And that I don't think that's right either. I think there has to be a balance between the reflection and something more experiential and emotional. Ed in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ed. Oh, hi. I love this show. I love you guys. And we love you too, Ed. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I, I deserve it. Uh, well, first of all, I don't know anything, so I passed my qualms, right? I'm, I can yeah. yeah, you're a budding Socrates. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so now, but I'm going to say a couple of things, and, and I'm just, there's a slogan. Um, you're only young ones, but you can be immature your whole life. That, that, that's a very good <laughs> driving principle for myself. And then... Um, uh, the 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 older people are uh, wisdom is not necessarily a function of old age. It's just that they uh, when you're old you don't have any more excuse for being young and stupid, you know. And then, um, uh, well, to, on a more serious note, uh, it seems like wisdom is kind of like ideas. They just sort of they come into you if you're open to it. I wrote wrote a, a few things that, that seem to condition it. Uh, I like your attention, that's good, and then intention, you have the intention to, to be open to it, and then commitment, and then openness, of course, and humility, or humbleness, uh, and, and the most important, non-grasping, or, or um, you know, it's almost like spiritual materials, I hate these people, like, I'm going to be wise, and I'm going, you know, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's sort of like build up wisdom, like the way people build up money. It's, it's pretty, so, pretty obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, let me see if I can but, get a response from uh, from Valerie. Valerie, what what do you think about Ed's uh, list of things? There, it was a I, lot I, on his plate. Yeah, I quite like the list, and you know, it actually overlaps a lot with my own list. But I, I wanted to say something about the last point, the non grasping, because I think that that's it's that's a good insight because. Um, you know, it seems like if you start talking to people about wisdom, no one wants to admit that they're wise. No one will ever say, oh, yes, I'm well, I'm wise. If you ask them, who's an example of someone, you know, who's wise, they'll never say themselves. And it seems like there's something just wrong with saying that you're wise. And partly it has to do with the lack of humility. But I think it also has to do with this non grasping point that Ed is making, um, that you're, you, you know, you're not supposed to be uh, clamoring to increase your wisdom uh, like you would in, really? in increasing your bank account. Why? Why not? I mean, uh, it, uh, isn't isn't there a wisdom prayer? I mean, why not? If, if, especially if you think wisdom's, if you think like as the Christians do, that wisdom comes from being attuned to the voice of God. So you pray that you hear the voice of God. You get in these quiet moments. So why not try to improve your wisdom? Well, it's not a little bit like being cool. I mean, you know, it's just you can't be cool if you're trying too hard to be cool. And you can't be wise if you're trying too hard to be wise. I'm going to let you answer that after our break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about wisdom with Valerie Tiberius from the University of Minnesota, who's author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely With Our Limits. People today know more than ever before. Ours is an age of unparalleled scientific knowledge and unparalleled technological expertise. 
But is ours an age of unparalleled wisdom as well, or do we lack the wisdom to solve the real problems of our time? Where has all the wisdom gone when Philosophy Talk continues? We are trying to speak words of wisdom today because we're asking the question, what is wisdom? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, and this is the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and our guest is Valerie Tiberius, author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely With Our Limits. Valerie, I want to take you back just briefly to our analogy with cool. You don't say, hey, I'm Mm -hmm. cool. You don't say, hey, I'm wise. But then you said wisdom isn't the kind of thing you grasp at. But I don't understand why that's not so. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't it be part of my steadfast intention to try however possible to increase my wisdom? Yeah, you know, this I'm actually when I said that I'm sort of reporting the results of a conversation with a number of people who were uh, at a conference talking about wisdom and everyone's intuition was it can't you're a wise person doesn't grasp at it. And I I'm so it's not a view that I have exactly. It's more like that seems to be the, you know, the common the common wisdom about wisdom is it's not this kind of thing that you desperately reach for. Uh, and maybe the reason for that is that um, it is so hard to cultivate wisdom that if you sort of make that your goal, um, you're you're being a little bit boastful to think that you could uh, become perfectly wise. It might have to do with that. So I've been thinking a little bit about about uh, uh, wisdom over the break and, and the connection of experiences with wisdom. And I, I want to give you an example of someone who seems to me quite wise. And I think he's interesting because he's a very active person. He's not sitting on a rocking chair somewhere spouting homilies. And that's Jimmy Carter. Now, you know, a lot of people uh, 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 go through what he's been through. He was president. He was a one-term president, so forth and so on. And they, they end up spending their life... Uh, you know, earning a lot of money, giving speeches and stuff like that. Instead, he's he, he's he's turned to to uh, 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 you know supervising elections around the world and writing books that nobody else has the guts to write, even though he knows it'll be called a lot of names. And speaking and, he, he, and he, speaking truths that other politicians yeah, don't won't dare to speak. And he just seems so grounded and uh, much more than he was when he was present. Like he's gained some wisdom. What do you think about that example? Yeah, I like that example. He seems to have a good, I mean, you know, given all the things we've already said, he seems to have a good sense of what matters and he's acting and, you know, he's living his life in accordance with that. Um, it might it might be particularly hard to be, I'm sure it's true that he's gained wisdom through experience, but it also might be particularly hard to be wise as a world leader because uh, there's so many pressures on you from so many different people. Oh, that, uh, so it might be that he has more room to be wise now mm. that he's not president well, anymore. Well, that, that's, a, that's a good thought, and we'll have to get into that topic. But I want to let some more callers in here for a moment. Uh, that's Chris in Chicago, all the way from Chicago. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Chris. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. Well, thank yeah, you. You I must be listening to, to us online. Thank you for listening online. Oh, no problem. Uh, I found you guys on Facebook. Um, I just wanted to talk about... Uh, uh, what you guys think about um, gaining wisdom at an earlier age as opposed to getting it all from experience and, I mean, attributing intelligence to being wise. And uh, as, you, as you said earlier, there's some people that experience just a whole lot of things and don't gain any wisdom. Right, right. Chris, thanks for the question. It would be sad if you couldn't be wise at a relatively young age. 
uh, Valerie. What do you think? Is there a way of being wise for, for the young to be wise? Or is it like the wisdom of youth just an oxymoron kind of expression? I mean, so I don't think there's any sort of end state of wisdom. I think everyone's always on a kind of path to be more wise than they were before. So I certainly think young people can be on that path just as well as old people. Um, it, I think it's also true that different components of wisdom are more important at different periods of one's life. And so um, I think for for young people, humility is particularly important. I'm, I've been director of undergraduate studies in my department for a while. And I, I see a lot of students who they think they know what they want, but they're in this conflict because, like, they think they want to go to med school, but they they hate their biology classes and they're falling asleep in them and they're bored out of their skulls and they love their philosophy class. They just don't know what they want and what they what they what they're like really. Um, and yet, at, when you're young, you're so sure, you're so confident that you do know who you are as a person. And I think for a young person, focusing on that kind of uh, humility about wh- what your self-conception is would be a, a valuable thing to do. So, so Valerie, let, let's segue back to what we were going to talk about this uh, segment, which is now that we possess greater scientific knowledge and greater technological expertise than people ever had before, how come... We don't live in an age of unparalleled wisdom, or we, or do we? And have I just not noticed? Well, I mean, one thing you might think is that there never has been much, um, much wisdom, because wisdom's really hard, and so there just aren't a lot of people who've succeeded. Um, but it's also, I mean, I think the problem with right now is that things are really complicated, and we have a lot of access to, we we know a lot more about how other people do things. So if you, if you sort of grow up with a stable set of values from your community that you're kind of given, and you think about them, and they look good, and you live your life in accordance with them, Uh, It might be a little easier to be wise, but when you're like us and you have all all this different information about how other people in other cultures and other people in other cities and states do things, um, it can become confusing to figure out what matters to you and how to how to put those things together into a life. You're thinking about uh, sort of individual wisdom and how to live my life. And I think you're right. But I also think one of our problems is collective wisdom, public wisdom, the wisdom of our leaders. We live, and and I and one of the things is that it's kind of a consequence of the of our our vastly greater scientific and technological knowledge and prowess that we can do things to the earth that nobody ever could before. We we are in the position of wrecking and ruining the earth. We were in a position, you know, when we thought human life could be exterminated by everywhere on the planet by the reckless acts of, of leaders with these nuclear weapons. People before never had to face such challenges. If we're the same people, right, but we have so much more power over 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 the earth, over 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 human beings than we ever have before, but we don't have any greater wisdom in how to use these things and what to matter, then it's like technology gives us problems that we lack the wisdom to solve. John often says this, and I think it's true, that our <laughs> technological prowess and our scientific knowledge often outstrip our, our kind of public wisdom. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, you're you're 
preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I don't I don't think of wisdom in terms of knowledge, so or you know, factual knowledge um, and and technical expertise. That's not what wisdom is. So the fact that we have lots more of that stuff and lots more power um, isn't going to make us more wise well, automatically. Know, but I do think people. I do think we are prone because we live in a technological scientific age. I do think we are prone to think that the answers to things are given to us by the experts in the lab coats, right? You want to know, and, and that people kind of have lost sight of, especially the idea of sh- sort of shared public wis- wisdom. They think, oh, the economists will tell you. Well, they, they're going to tell you what the curves are, but they're not going to tell you what choices you ought to make. And well, yet moral philosophers are not taken to be the experts on what matters. <laughs> <laughs> and you you find this very depressing, right? Well, they, 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 don't, they don't always agree. But, you know, just to well, be optimistic true. for a bit, couldn't couldn't we take a, a, a large computer and, and couldn't we talk to a lot of wise people and do kind of an expert systems thing and just see what kind of questions they ask and the kind of things they're skeptical about and then have a program that all world leaders or at least America's leaders have to access. They don't have to do what it says, but they have to access it. Tells them what a wise man or woman would say about a given problem. I think that's feasible. Be a good use of our money. I, I particularly like the idea of putting it in terms of questions. What are the questions that these people would ask about the problem? Uh, because I think. You know, you might not be able to program into this thing the answers to the questions, but if people ask the right questions, that would be some progress because it would shake you out of that sort of dogmatic, I know everything kind of state that we're often in. Yeah, there might be some standing questions like, why are you listening to Cheney? But anyway. <laughs> so we've got, uh, we've, got, we've got a chance for uh, time for, I think, one last caller, Ted in Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ted. What's your comment or question? Oh, you know, I, I completely forgot. No, I just kidding. <laughs> I, um, I was wondering, um, I think this piggybacks on your guests saying how we can't just accrue wisdom, and I think the worst way to try and accrue wisdom would be to pray to God or to get voices from God. I've only heard bad, really bad stories about this, and even... The most famous one I can think of, Joan of Arc. I mean, was she got her voices and directions directly from God, and look how she wound up. I mean, I guess she saved France, but but was that wise? Well, but... Uh, and, but and what about Abraham? <laughs> and, and he heard a voice from God saying to sacrifice his son on the top of a rock. So Me. you never know. Okay, so if you... It, but But Ted, come on. Okay, is the... It, so if you're in this prayerful worshiper mold in which you try to listen... For a clear directive, right? A directive uh-huh. that you can make your own. That's what prayer and worship is about. Listen for a clear directive, and the inward voice, this inward voice of consciousness. Come. Is that any worse than uh, if you're just going to listen to your own for your own voice speaking? I mean, it, sometimes your own voice speaking is going to lead you astray. Sometimes it's going to lead you well. I mean, are well, the religious uh, really worse off than the irreligious in I this know, regard? I, I think Ted's got a point. There's a great painting by Caravaggio of Abraham about to cut his kid's throat and. Uh, he looks nuts. He doesn't yeah. look wise. So what what do you think, uh, Valerie? Are they religious in their prayer for worship or have humility, listen for a clear directive that uh, carries some authority? Are they worse off than the rest of us? I think I'm with Ted and John here. Hearing voices <laughs> in your head is a mark of insanity. Um, but, I, but I do think that there's some, uh, that, you know, 
people pray for different reasons. And sometimes people pray and they hear voices in their head telling them what to do. But sometimes people pray uh, and are engaged in a spiritual practice that helps them center their own lives and pay attention to what matters. Well, so, that, that's what, you know, that's I'm, what I'm not against that. Well, I think that's what I mean. I think it's caricature to caricature it, to, to call it a voice in your head speaking. It's like the tr- reflect, meditate, and when you have a sincere determination that you can endorse. Now, somebody will say that's the voice of God in uh, making His will manifest, but that's just a, that's the overlay. But it's still the same phenomenology of this reflective, prayerful, humble attitude in which you know you try to say what is what really matters. That's very generous. You think that's very generous? <laughs> well, I, I think there really are people who hear voices in their head. But uh, but but if you're right about about what the phenomenon is, then I suppose it's not so um, crazy. I'll give you a chance for one last one closing comment, really quickly. What's your last thought? Um. Oh, gee, that's that's a hard one because wisdom is such a enormous topic. Um. I, one thing we haven't talked very much about, I suppose, is um, the kind of emotional aspect of wisdom. And I I guess I would just want to uh, remind people that a, a kind of empathy towards other people and willingness to put yourself in their shoes is a is an important component of, of figuring out what matters in life, too. On, on that inspiring note, I'm going to thank you for joining us, Valerie. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Our guest has been Valerie Tiberius. She's a professor of philosophy from the University of Minnesota, author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely with Our Limits. So, John, you're a wise person. I regard you as one of the wise men that I know. But <laughs> did you, are you any wiser for our conversation today? Well, I definitely think I am, Ken, and I appreciate that you think I'm wise. I just, I just kind of wonder about Socrates, right? When he was wandering around... Athens. I mean, we think of him as wise, but did they think of him no, <laughs> as no. wise, or did they? I mean, I guess not because they put him to death. But I mean, you talk about somebody trying to be wise and looking uncool. Yeah. Well, they thought of him as a wise ass. But this conversation <laughs> continues on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore, I blog. And you can talk to us more on our very active Facebook page. And, and listen to this, folks. It's important. You can sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. For the final word, we crack wise with Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, what is wisdom? Evidence is conflicting. There are the so-called wise monkeys, speak no evil, see no evil, hear no evil. Are they wise or just in denial? We sometimes say a word to the wise. Why would the wise need words from us? The owl is considered wise when, in fact, the owl is a bird and therefore actually stupid. The list of the truly wise is surprisingly short. Socrates learned from the Oracle of Delphi that nobody was wiser than he. He didn't believe that. spent the rest of his days using the Socratic method to prove that somebody is wiser than he is and making people look stupid in the effort. He became so irritating that Greece put him to death. He was considered wise because he didn't think he was. Something in that, I suppose. Jesus is considered wise, but he's a bit cryptic, isn't he? Always throwing out weird parables and his followers always asking what he's going on about. There's a song that says the wise man builds his house on rock, the foolish man builds his house on sand, therefore we should build our house on Jesus. This might be great spiritually, but a little impractical for carpentry. There's Confucius, whose wisdom lives on in fortune cookies. There are the three so-called wise men, but the gifts they bring to the baby Jesus seem a little foolish. Frankincense, incense, and myrrh. Couldn't they have stopped by the 7-Eleven and picked up some pampers? There are the seven sages of Greece to whom people went for advice, and they would receive pithy statements like, avoid injustice, restrain anger, or all men are wicked. Again, I was hoping to get investment tips or how to deal with an angry ex-girlfriend, but thanks, I guess. The wisest of the wise was King Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon is one of those things we are all supposed to yearn for. The most famous example of his wisdom, two women and a baby came before him, each claiming to be the child's mother. 
He didn't know who was lying, so he offered to chop the baby in two and give half to each. One woman said, go ahead. The other said, please don't. So Solomon ruled wisely that she was the true mother. Today we probably turn to DNA testing rather than the threat of infanticide. But even then, Solomon might have found neighbors for witnesses or maybe even the father of the child. But no, he had to pull a flashy baby-chopping card. Wisdom sometimes comes from the mouths of babes, but that's pretty much accidental, like a chimpanzee typing Shakespeare. It's pretty much universally accepted that wisdom comes with age. I'll leave it to science to take the fun out of that. A new study out of the Royal College of Psychiatrists Congress in Edinburgh reveals that older people are less dependent on dopamine, making them less impulsive and emotional. Less likely to respond thoughtlessly because their thoughts have slowed down. Well, I don't know. My mother, in her late 80s, still throws things at the television when she sees some political moron spouting nonsense. And what about her beloved son? How is he doing on his path from wise guy to wise man? If the path to wisdom is listen, observe, keep your big mouth shut, so far for me, zero for three. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2011. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Our director of research is Ben Hirsch. Leo Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.